Amen to that. Go to another seat, church. And as you are doing that, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We're continuing our way through Matthew's gospel here. And we are arriving at the end of the first major section in this book. We've reached the end of kind of the preliminaries, uh, right? And we're about to jump into Jesus' public ministry. And this is really the transition passage where we go, uh, where we jump into that. Um, and so what, what's been going on so far in Matthew is really, it's been Matthew's uh, bluff. Do you guys remember learning how to write essays and papers and stuff back when you were first getting started? Do you guys remember, did you guys get taught to do a bluff? B-L-U-F, bottom line up front. I don't know, maybe it was just me, right? That was one of the things I was told, right? Put the bottom line up front. Tell people what you want to tell them right up front. And another way I had it put was tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them, right? For, for the sake of clarity. It's big, especially in like journalism. Um, but basically what Matthew has been doing so far is he's been giving us the bottom line up front. What all of this time that we've spent before the ministry of Jesus, what he has been doing, he's been very selective and very particular about what he's shown us. And it has all been designed to show us who Jesus is and what he's here to do. Matthew's gospel has a very specific purpose. He wants to accomplish one thing. He wants to convince you of who Jesus is and persuade you to throw your lot in with him. That's all he wants to do. And so what he has been doing before we even really get to where Jesus is doing anything, he's been tying it to all these fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy and everything to show you, hey, this is who Jesus is. This is the Messiah, and this is what he looks like, and this is what he's going to do. He's not burying the lead. He's laying it all out there so that when we get into Jesus' ministry, we're like, oh, yeah, like now we're coloring in the lines. We've already had the outline, right? The last thing Matthew wants to be is unclear. And so he's taken these three and a half chapters so far to make sure we know, before we even get into Jesus really doing anything yet, this is who this guy is. This is what he is here to do. And our passage today is really the last kind of, his last push for that. The last bottom line up front from Matthew. The last thing that tells us, hey guys, when we look at this guy, this is what you're seeing. This is what you're looking at. This is what's going on. Don't get confused. That's what we have here in Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17. So let's read it. It's not a lot that happens here. It's five verses, but it's pretty straightforward and to the point. Matthew 4, 12 reads like this. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He is Jesus. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. For that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. There is such an incredibly beautiful 
revelation of Jesus Christ in this passage. Lord, and I just pray for your help this morning, your spirit's help uh, for me as I speak, that my words would be your words, uh, that anything that is not of you uh, would fall on deaf ears. But on the same token, that you would soften hearts and open ears and open eyes to be able to see what is of you here, uh, to be able to, to see Christ here, to be able to apprehend the beauty and the glory of our Savior as you've revealed it in this passage of Scripture. Uh, we know that's not something we can do naturally. That's not something we can do in, your, in our flesh. It's something your spirit has to do in us. And so uh, we plead his help this morning, and we pray that you would uh, be true to your word, that your word, when it goes forward, it does not return void. You accomplish all that you intend to. And I pray that your purposes and your intentions for your word this morning would be to just dazzle your people with the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so first thing we see here is that John gets arrested. John the Baptist gets arrested. We don't get a lot of details. We actually get more details about this later on in Matthew, like eight chapters later. It ends up getting circled back around. But we don't get the details here because it's not really important. Matthew's not really concerned with John at this time. He's really just kind of marking time. He's just trying to say, hey, what Jesus does now, this is when he happened. He's tying the two things together for time's purposes. John ended up getting arrested because he confronted King Herod on some sin, and King Herod didn't like that. Um, and so John got arrested. They would have liked to kill him, but he was too popular. Anyway, we'll get to that more in Matthew 12 or Matthew 14. But that's what that's there, just kind of orienting us to the time frame. Jesus was baptized by John, went out in the wilderness, was tempted by Satan. Now he's back. John's been arrested, and that kind of sets off these next events. Right, so when John's arrested, what we see is that Jesus heads back to Galilee. Right? Now, if we are kind of thinking about our map, right, we've had a lot of geography early on in Matthew. We've been kind of all over, and all these places have been significant. Jesus has been living in Nazareth, which is north, up in Galilee, the northern part of Israel. He came down to Judea, the southern part, to link up with John to be baptized. He went out into the wilderness of Judea to be tempted. Now when John's arrested, he heads back up north to Nazareth. He had, basically, he heads home. Right, that's what he's doing. But he doesn't stay there. He doesn't stay in Nazareth. We find out when he gets back, he basically packs up and he moves, right? Like probably about half of you have done in the last two years, right? We're all familiar with this, right? Moving house. Jesus moves. And he moves his residence to a little town called Capernaum. Small town. It's about 20 miles northeast of where Nazareth is, right on the, uh, right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So that's basically all that happens here in the passage. There's not a lot going on. But Matthew is saying a lot with few words by tying this back into the Old Testament, as he's done so many times, right? So I want to start by talking about Nazareth, though, because this is something that is, it's easy to overlook, right? But Jesus spent most of his life in Nazareth, and we know almost nothing about his life there. Jesus came back from basically being a refugee in Egypt when he was a small child, and went back to Nazareth. That's where Mary and Joseph were. That's where they were living. So he's very small. Anywhere from like one to two to three, that kind of range. Right? And he lived there until now, when he's 30. Right? And Jesus dies at age 33. So out of his 33 years, 28, 29, something like that, are spent living in this little 200-person town 
of Nazareth. 90% of his time. And yet in Matthew's gospel, we have absolutely nothing about it. He doesn't talk about any of it. As soon as they move to Nazareth, he jumps forward all the way up to Jesus' baptism. Right? We get a little bit in Luke, but hard, but very, very little. Right? So the vast majority, this huge period in Jesus' life, we have very little recorded. It's a bit curious, isn't it? Right? Like Jesus is the central figure. We want to know everything, right? We want to know everything we could about him. And there's this massive gap. And I think that warrants some digging on, right? Like, that's intentional. Everything in Scripture is intentional, right? What is the deal with these quiet years? Well, I think just because they're quiet and just because we don't have much recorded there does not mean they're unimportant. And in fact, the nature of them, the kind of quiet nature of them actually tells us quite a bit. They're quiet. We don't have a lot recorded there because, most likely, they were very mundane. There wasn't a lot to write home about. Jesus was doing probably exactly what you'd expect any child who grows up into a young man to be doing. Playing. Growing. Learning. And so you don't have to write about it because everybody just kind of knows that's what happens with kids. Right? He was being a son, a brother, a friend. We know he took up his father's trade of carpentry. What's interesting is that he probably spent more time on earth as a carpenter than in ministry. Of his time here, 33 years, only three of them are spent in public ministry. Our passage here says, at the end of this, he began to preach. He has not done any public ministry to this point. 30 of his 33 years are spent not doing ministry. Now, he did all this stuff without sin, of course, which makes it very distinct from us, but most of Jesus' life is very normal, regular human stuff. Eating, working, playing, sleeping. Now, does that seem like a waste of time to you? Right? Think about what we're going to see when Jesus starts his ministry. Think about who Jesus is and what he can do. Right? He runs around healing sick people, bringing people Back to life from the dead. He can feed thousands with a couple loaves of bread. He can do a lot of really useful, helpful things. Seems like we could use more of that kind of stuff, right? As much of that as we could get. Seems like it would be a good thing. Right? Am I the only one who kind of thinks this way? It seems very odd that so much of his life would be spent doing this ordinary stuff. But I think it's the fact that questions like that come to my mind that show us exactly why these years are so important. Right? Because when I ask those questions, which are genuine questions that come to my mind, they betray a certain understanding about life that I have and that I hold. When we think about living a life of meaning, right? A life glorifying God, a life walking in the Spirit, however you want to describe the life that we are meant to live here. We tend to see it, I think we tend to think of it in terms of mountaintop experiences, like these big things where we felt a lot or we saw a lot and it stood out. These mountaintop experiences are these exceptional moments 
right? And we long for those, right? And we feel like that is really kind of, that's, that's the real stuff, right? We can tend to think that our sanctification happens primarily in, in big leaps forward, right? We have these kind of Damascus Road sorts of things where our whole world is just rocked and we're just different people all of a sudden. You know, these big jumps when conditions are just right. We tend to think that God is glorified most in the great and the grand. But I think that's part of the reason Jesus' life on earth looked the way that it did, to, to bear witness against that kind of thinking, actually. Guys, nobody ever glorified God as much in their earthly life as Jesus did. Nobody has come close. Jesus did it perfectly. Which means he never missed an opportunity to do it better or more. He did it as much as he possibly could. And he did it through regular, everyday human life in a little town of 200 people. Is that what we would think? If we're picturing the life on earth that glorifies God the most, is that what we're imagining? Building furniture in a 200-person town. It's not. Guarantee you it's not. No. We're envisioning something much different. This is so helpful for us to realize, guys. The life that glorifies God is not spent looking for the biggest stage or chasing ever-increasing religious highs, as enticing as that may be. The life that glorifies God is found in doing all the little normal things in the right direction and from the right place. Glorifying God comes from resting gratefully in the sufficiency of what he has done for us, and from that rest and from that sufficiency, loving those he puts in front of us, it's literally how he summarizes what we're called to do. Love God and love your neighbor. We love God by trusting him. And we love our neighbor by caring for our neighbor. It's not complicated. For Jesus, it's probably looked like, like helping out with his younger siblings. Right? Doing good work for those who hired him. For caring for his widowed mother. We know Joseph dies sometime in between the time when Jesus learns his trade uh, and when he starts his ministry. And church, I bring this up because I, I hope you see how liberating this is. I hope you see how liberating this is. We live in a world that demands bigger, faster, more all the time out of everything. And yet for most of us, that's kind of beyond our reach, right? Most of us spend our days doing pretty inglorious work, right? We do our job, whatever it happens to be. We raise kids, we keep homes, we feed families, and then we go to sleep, right? Like, and that's, that's how most of our lives are spent. And the beautiful thing about this, the beautiful thing, the fact that, is that Jesus spent most of his life like that too, and he glorified God perfectly. Whatever station you find yourself in, there's nothing about the smallness of your circumstances that prohibits you from glorifying God. 
There's nothing that has to change around you. You don't have to get that job. You don't have to get that many followers. You don't have to get to that many kids. You don't have to get that spouse in order to glorify God. That's a fallacy. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, as a Christian, you have the privilege of doing it for the glory of God. I guarantee you there have been plumbers that have honored God more than, there are, than some pastors. Guarantee it. Not a doubt in my mind. Because I'm sure there are some that have honored him more than me. I don't doubt that for a second. Guys, our ability to live what is actually a meaningful life, which is a life of glorifying God and enjoying him, has nothing to do with your circumstances. There is nothing that can be stripped away from you or that you, I think you need to have that will enhance your ability to glorify good more or reduce it at all. It is not tied to having a certain position, a certain vocation. To glorify God, we trust Christ and we love who he brings to us in the place where he has us. And that's, that's it. There's a beautiful simplicity to this. And it's hard to embrace because it's going to seem oftentimes small and insignificant to the world's eyes. And frankly, it's often going to seem very small and insignificant to our own eyes. Right? When you're slogging through a day with a sick kid and changing diapers, it does not feel particularly... Glory is not the first word that comes to your mind, right? Or when you're slogging through crunching numbers and doing spreadsheets, right? Or when you're just exhausted and you fall asleep on the couch because the day has been so much, right? These things do not just, glory is not the word association you get. But our God is one who uses the weak things of the world to confound the strong. He uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, why would we not expect that he receives glory in the small and ordinary things? Of course he does. Of course he does. Jesus lived for you faithfully, not just at Calvary, not just at his baptism, not just in the wilderness when he's being tempted by Satan, not just when he rose. He lived faithfully for you in all of those mundane moments, right? He made his food perfectly to the glory of God for you, right? He loved his brothers and sisters perfectly for you. He made chairs perfectly for you. You need his righteousness in those mundane things as much as you do in the big things. What he did in those quiet years was just as necessary as the things we are going to read about further on in Matthew's gospel. He lived faithfully for you in the mundane so that your mundane can be a joyful good, right? These, you get these small things back now, right? These smallest little things are now monumental. As a Christian, the smallest little task that you get to do from a place of trust in Christ and love for neighbor is greater than the biggest accomplishments you can think of these names in history. The empire of Rome, the conquest of Alexander, all of these things, the pyramids of Egypt. These small acts done 
from resting in Christ and loving your neighbor are greater, more honoring to God, more significant, no matter what they look like in the world's eyes. Church, let us not despise the small things that our Savior embraced. Right? Each of those little mundane moments are gifts. They are opportunities. They are privileges. They are a place that God has put you to trust him and to care for other people, no matter how small they may seem. And that gives them monumental value. Let us not despise the small things that our Savior embraced. All right, well, it's time to move from Nazareth onto Capernaum, right? Those hidden, quiet years that we know so little about, they have reached their end here in this passage. Uh, And this, what we read about here, this move from Nazareth to Capernaum is Jesus' last act before his public ministry commence. When I say it's his last move in preparation for his public ministry, it's literally a move. That's, that's, that's the move. The move is a move, right? He moves and he lives in Capernaum. And this seems on the surface like such a kind of insignificant thing, right? Like it just seems like a little detail that does not carry much weight. What in the world does this have to do with my life? And why, Matthew, who's so particular on what he lists, why does he put this in there? Well, that's what we need to see. What is so significant about Jesus moving 20 miles to the northeast and making his residence in Capernaum? Well, Jesus did not move to Capernaum just because he wanted a change of scenery. He didn't move because the politics were better, housing prices were better, good school district, all the things we move for. That's not what was driving Jesus, right? This move is very intentional. It has a very, very specific purpose, just as Jesus coming to the Jordan to be baptized by John was very specific and very intentional. Just as him going out to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan was so intentional and necessary. This move is no less than that. This move to Capernaum is the, in a way, kind of the last check, check in the box of bearing witness to Jesus' messiahship, right? The fact that he is the anointed one. He is the one that we've been waiting for before he actually starts doing, where he starts actually being the Messiah publicly. And Matthew shows us this not by explaining himself, but by connecting us to the Old Testament, right? As he has done so many times, right? Matthew knows his Old Testament and he uses it, man. And he does it again. He says that Jesus moved here and he went to live here to fulfill this prophecy that comes from Isaiah 9. Now, I want to read it to you in its full context because you really have to have that. He gives us the first couple of verses. You've really got to read at least the first seven to see everything that he is pointing us to here. And so we're going to do that now. Uh, part of this is going to feel very familiar to you, uh, although usually in December, not February. But we're going to read Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, or Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, 
you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I'm going to walk you guys through this bit by bit. Uh, There's a lot of layers here. Just as Matthew kind of sent us back to Isaiah, Isaiah sends us back to a bunch of places here. He references several different things in the Old Testament through this prophecy that shed light on what we're supposed to see here about Jesus. And as we move through it, there's almost this, this building effect as we see more and more and more about who exactly this Messiah is and what he's actually going to bring about. So let's start first with the immediate situation Isaiah is speaking into, because that's really what the first couple verses are about. Israel's been a divided kingdom for a long time at this point. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And at this point, both are going to be judged for their idolatry and for their breaking of God's covenant. And they're both going to be judged by means of foreign nations coming in and invading and conquering them and sending them into exile. Isaiah is prophesying in the wake of the fall of the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, that fell to Assyria. Israel was invaded and conquered and exiled by the Assyrian ruler Tiglath-Pileser III. And when he did, the Assyrians did all that they could to wipe out Israel's identity. They took a massive amount of exiles away from the land. They redivided the territory, the territory that had been arranged in tribal uh, allotments that God had set up based on the 12 tribes, the sons of Jacob now got reproportioned into Assyrian provinces. The names got changed into Assyrian names. All of these things just kind of to completely unmoor Israel from who they had been. Now, partly where this connects in with Jesus is the fact that the two tribes mentioned here, Zebulun and Naphtali, Nazareth is in the lands that belong to Zebulun. Capernaum is in the lands that belong to Naphtali. All right, so what Jesus is doing by moving to Capernaum, he's connecting himself with these two areas that this prophecy was about. And these two tribes are both, they're some of the most northern, most tribes in Israel. So when Assyria came to attack, Assyria attacked from the north. Assyria, the empire was up there. So Naphtali and Zebulun took the brunt They took the first wave. They took Assyria at full strength before anything had been whittled down. They got the worst of it when Assyria came and invaded. And so when when Isaiah talks about Zebulun and Naphtali being in anguish and being brought into contempt, this is why. He's talking about a people who were were the front lines in the face of an empire that 
absolutely dwarfed them that was known for their utter brutality at levels that had not been seen by empires before. They were renowned for what they would do to the people that they conquered. And that's what Zebulun and Naphtali took the brunt of. They took the full strength of Assyria's blow. And then after the horrors of the war, their families and the communities were split up by exile while their conquerors set about erasing their identity. It's a little bit like if, if America was invaded by a great power, right? And ground zero was Nashville, right? That's where they started the invasion, is Nashville. And so we take the first undiluted blows. We get everything at full strength. And then our families and our church is split up, divided. A bunch of us get taken off back to the invading country. All the names and streets and towns that we know get renamed names in a foreign language that we don't even know. Right? Think about what that would do. Right? Like we don't have anything remotely resembling this. You know, when when I was the closest thing I can compare to is when I was in Iraq and I was with people whose country had been taken over a couple of times, and um, that does something really devastating. To you, you're very unmoored about who you are, and there is just a, a depth of sorrow there um, that I've not seen in quite the same way. It's, it's just a different sort of a thing, right? But this is not. If we stop there, that's enough to kind of make the language Isaiah uses make sense when he talks about darkness and he talks about this being brought into contempt and, and these words that he uses, but but. Really, the war stuff is really just the beginning of it. Because Isaiah makes clear when he talks about this judgment, what Assyria does is that Assyria is doing this, but God is the one wielding Assyria. God is using Assyria. God is doing this as judgment on his people. It It says that right in the passage. He's the one who brings them into this. He brings her into contempt, it says. So this darkness that they're experiencing from Assyria is is just, it's an outward taste, right? But the deeper thing, the deeper problem is the spiritual darkness. The wrath of God is falling because of their sin and idolatry. As horrible as what Assyria is doing, the most devastating thing, the real darkness that is the problem for Zebulun and Naphtali and the rest of Israel is their spiritual darkness, their sin, their idolatry. Their separation from God because of their sin. That is the real darkness. What Assyria has done, as horrific as it is, pales in comparison to the spiritual reality, the spiritual darkness, the spiritual weight that they are under facing the wrath of God. So, Isaiah writes this prophecy into heavy, heavy, heavy circumstances. But this is a prophecy of hope, right? Despite all that, right? It gets better from there, okay? He's writing that in the wake of it. That has happened, right? That is a reality. That judgment has fallen. And he is writing now to tell them that that judgment, that this darkness that has fallen is not the last word. And that the very God who brought this judgment who brought this darkness on them, rightfully so, 
is also going to be the one who lifts it. It's not a prophecy of darkness and judgment, but a, prom- a prophecy of light after darkness and hope restored where all hope was gone. And that image of light and darkness is the first image I- Isaiah uses to communicate what's going on, going to happen in the future. Pick up in verse 2. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Isaiah here is, is picking up a little bit on the language of creation back in Genesis 1, where darkness covers the earth, and then God says, let there be light, and that light shatters the darkness, and everything changes. But now what we're seeing as Isaiah connects this to Jesus is that Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the light that is going to come and shatter this darkness. He has come to both Zebulun and Naphtali, right? Nazareth and Capernaum to shatter the darkness. Not just political darkness, not Assyria, but the darkness of sin and death, the deeper darkness, the root darkness that led to the judgment. Right? And you know what's really amazing about this is that right before this verse, it says that this light is not coming just for Zebulun and Naphtali. It says it's coming to Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. We talked a few weeks ago about this, this area where Jesus lives. It's like the borderlands between Israel and the other nations. There's a lot of mixing around there. And so part of what's going on, you just realize the Gentiles are the one who brought this darkness. Assyria is the Gentiles. They're the ones who did all this horrific stuff. And now what God is saying, he's saying this light is going to come and it is going to be a light not just to Zebulun, not just to Naphtali, not just Israel, but also for Galilee of the Gentiles. It turns out that this light is not going to just be for the oppressed. It is going to be a light for the oppressors as well. Because even though they may be politically on top right now, they also dwell in darkness. They dwell in the darkness of their sin and they sit under the wrath of God. Right? They too are, they are gonna fall themselves not too much longer after this. Right? They need the same thing Israel needs. They need the light of the world for their spiritual darkness. And here, even this early on, we start to get the hint that, oh, this Messiah this is not just to reset Israel, right? Take it back to the glory, glory days of David. This is something different. This is new. This is already bigger. This has already gotten wider and broader than what we saw even at Israel's peak. And so what we see is that the groans of defeat, the, the agony is replaced with the joy of victory. Verse 3 says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, Isaiah is talking about the joy of the people here to whom this light has come, and he uses two images. He talks about the joy at harvest when the crops come in, and the joy of victory when you've won the battle and you've got the spoils of war and everybody's getting rewarded for putting their life on the line, right? And these joys share a commonality between them. They are alike in that they are joy over something that, is, something that is finished and complete, right? When the harvest comes in, the work is done. You just reap the benefits now. Now it's, now it's the fun time, right? All the work is done. The blessing has come in. That's why there's the rejoicing. 
You've come through and you've won and now there's plenty. So you feast and you enjoy and you rest. Same thing happens after the battle, after you've defeated your enemies and conquered it. Now you divide up the spoils and you revel in the riches and everything. After it is done, when the harvest is in, the work is done. You don't divide the spoils of war until the enemy is defeated and the fighting is over. All right, so this tells us something about the nature of what this light is going to do. The light that is coming is not coming to give Israel a second chance. The light that is coming is not coming to reset things and like, okay, do better next time, guys. No, this light is coming to finish something, to complete something. This light that is coming, this Messiah that is coming, is going to do the work. So that the joy of the people is not the joy of like, all right, we got to reset. No, it's the joy of like, look, like all the blessings are here. This is huge, guys. This is pointing us to what Jesus the Messiah is going to do. Jesus did not come to be Moses again and say, okay, guys, didn't go real well last time. All right, now be good this time. Go for it. He did not come to do that. He came to do what we could not do, to accomplish what we could not accomplish, to finish it, to win for us what we cannot win for ourselves, and then to gift it to us as a gift of grace. So the joy that his work brings is the joy of, where, where do I chip? There's nothing for me to do. It's all done. It's finished. All I get to do is to revel in the spoils of his victory. That's the kind of joy that this gets rid of. This is just such a 180 from where they were, just living under the devastation of this darkness. And now the realization that they have been brought out of it, not by themselves, but completely by the work of this light, this one who is to come. Right? And, and to drive that home, in the next couple of verses, he takes us back to some times where we've seen this kind of deliverance before with Israel. In verses 4 and 5, we read this, For the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. There's references to two things in here, allusions to two things that Isaiah is pointing us back to. The first is Egypt. Oh. These, a lot of these descriptions, the yoke of the burden, the staff, these are words that were just used to describe Israel's plight as slaves in Egypt when they labored under that bondage. And what happened then? Did Israel win their freedom? No. No. God delivered them. And he did it in such a way that it was undeniable that God delivered them. Nobody could look at anything that happened and say, Wow, it's a good thing Israel figured that out. No, it was absolutely, utterly, and completely God's doing. He brought them out of the land of Egypt. It was his deliverance for them. Just as it is with the second reference here, which is to actually to Gideon. During the time of Gideon, during the time of the judges, Israel was oppressed by the Midianites. And so God raised up this guy, Gideon, who was not really great at the job. He was very faithless and had a lot of trouble. Um, that God picked him precisely because of that. 
Not only did God pick somebody who wasn't good at it, he kept winnowing down his combat power, right? Till he got him down to like, okay, I'm going to take this guy who can't lead people out of a paper bag and I'm going to leave him with just 300 guys to take on Midian. Why did he do it? To show that it was his deliverance. Israel did not free themselves from the Midianites. God delivered them from the Midianites. Isaiah is driving this home, guys. This one who's going to come is going to be the deliverer. Right? He is going to be the one who frees you, who sets you free, who does for you what you cannot do for yourselves. Jesus isn't just coming to talk about deliverance, to tell people how to get there. He is coming to do it, to accomplish it. That is who this Messiah is going to be. And lastly, we see in these last couple of verses that this deliverance is going to be realized in a king and a kingdom. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here, Isaiah is harking us back to 2 Samuel 7 and God's covenant with David, where he promised that he was going to give a king in the line of David whose throne would be established forever. And here now we see the promise of that reiterated, this light that is to come. This one who's going to free his people, not just from the darkness of oppression, but from the darkness of sin and death. The one who's going to do this solely on his own accomplishment. This is that king. This is that king that they have been waiting for. And this is a king who's not just a king, but this is a king that can be called Almighty God and Everlasting Father without blasphemy. This is not just any king. This is not just any son of David. God himself is going to reign over his people to ensure their flourishing and blessing and their peace. And because of that, this kingdom will be like no other. His reign will ever be expanding. There will be no contraction. There will be no downs. The peace that he brings will be unassailable beyond the reach of any threat, even the threat of sin and death and sorrow. Church, when we think about the kingdom of God, it is so easy to become prisoners of the moment, right? And to look around what we see in the world and decide that this kingdom uh, looks a little small, looks a little unsteady, looks a little shaky right now if I take a snapshot. So easy for us to do that. But this kingdom is a forevermore kingdom. It is an eternal kingdom, right? It is not bound to these little snapshot moments. It is ever growing because in each generation, dead sinners are being forgiven their transgressions and are being raised to life and added to this imperishable people of God. There has not been a generation that has not gone by that the kingdom of heaven has not grown through Christ's forgiving sin and adding to his people. It doesn't matter what things look like out there. This is what's happening. 
This kingdom is growing and expanding constantly as sinners are being convicted and running to the throne of grace and throwing themselves on the mercy of Christ and finding it to be rich and enough. His kingdom has never and will never diminish. It cannot. Because for it to diminish, Christ would have to lose someone that's his, and he will not do it. He cannot do it. Now, day by day, the chorus of voices marveling at the peace and life and rest and love that they have found grows. I love how we see this in Revelation. John's given this vision, and he says this, after, I looked, after this I looked up, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That chorus is just growing day by day by day as Christ forgives sinners and brings the dead to life. That's what Matthew is doing in this passage. Seems like it's talking about a U-Haul trip, right? No. As we're about to see Jesus start working, doing his public ministry, he wants us to know what's going on. He doesn't want us to get confused like so many people are, right? As they encounter his ministry, they're going to get confused about what it's about, what he's about, right? Matthew does not want that for us. He is trying to dial us in so it is crystal clear who this man is and what he has come to do. Jesus Christ is the great king who frees his people, not only from their enemies, but from sin and death itself. He brings not just flourishing, but eternal life. He brings justice, but he brings justice, and at the same time, he justifies the ungodly. If he didn't, justice would be really bad for us. But he does both. He is the matchless king. And however things may look, church, when we look around us, when we look at the world, when we look at headlines, and we look at what goes on in our world, however things may appear in the moment, this matchless king, it is his glory and his joy to give us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. If it looks like it's shaking, it's an illusion. We're the ones wrong, because he certainly is not. Right? So no matter what happens out in there in the world, church, take heart. The kingdom that you have been brought into, this people that you've been made a part of, is growing and flourishing. No matter how much the world may make a mockery of it and think it's small and insignificant and unimportant. Every earthly empire and power that was around when the church started has fallen. The church is still here because Christ is still saving sinners and he is well able to keep his people until they get home. We have a matchless king who has brought us from death to life 
and he will give us a kingdom that will not be shaken, church. Let's pray.